0: Inville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that's its own singularity. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg, and today's title is Supermassive Black Holes. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike.
1: So does this mean that we are uh, approaching a point of infinite density?
0: I feel like I'm approaching that as I get older, but... (laughs) Do you
1: understand the gravity of the situation?
0: Oh, nice. Oh,
1: God. Sorry. Sorry, sorry. So we're talking about black holes today.
0: Yeah, we are. Black holes have been popping up in the news recently. Mm. There's been a lot of recent research happening on it. I mean, the Nobel Prize was awarded in 2020 for some research being done for the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. But there've also been stories about how we now have technology to detect when two black holes run into each other. We're now able to, we have satellites that can detect more and more black holes so we're finding more and more of them mm-hmm. and as we find more and more of them then people are getting surprised by some of the results mm-hmm. that they're popping up in places we don't expect them to pop up and some of our assumptions about where they would show up and how big they would be and so forth are being a little surprising as well yeah so i i thought it would be fun to talk about you know what are black holes and one thing that i think a lot of people don't realize is that we have a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And in fact, that black hole is what's holding the entire galaxy together. Hmm. And it turns out that Milky Way is not unique in that. In fact, it seems that just about every galaxy has a black hole holding it all together. Hmm. And so I think this is going to... Surprise a lot of folks because in the popular imagination, people think that black holes are these big vacuums that just devour and eat everything anywhere around them. Mm -hmm. So people are not thinking of them as structures that can help hold together entire galaxies. Oh yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And
1: I also think that the name hole Mm -hmm. in a lot of people's minds implies the absence of substance Yeah. Like it's a blank spot or something when the opposite of that is in fact the case.
0: Right. So. Well, it is a hole in the sense that if you were looking for it, you would see nothing. Right. Because light would disappear inside of it and not come out. Yeah. So the idea of a black hole has been around for a long time, actually. Being able to really model it well, we needed Einstein's general relativity in order to really be able to model what's going on there well but the idea had been around before. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a black hole is basically that the gravity is so strong around these objects that nothing can escape, not even light. So that had been predicted before Einstein, actually, that we know that, for instance, to launch off of Earth, there's this concept of an escape velocity, that that if I wanted to get off of Earth, I have to be traveling at a certain speed. And this is not what rockets do. The model would be like, if I took a slingshot or something and shot something off, it has to be going at a certain speed to ultimately escape the Earth's gravity.
1: But less than that, and it eventually arcs and then comes back down, right? Right. Do you say the reason that this isn't described by what a rocket is doing is because of the propellant in a rocket?
0: Right. So a rocket continues to propel as it's going up. And so it it keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And whereas like if we were on, say, the moon, the moon has less mass, has less gravity. And so you would not have to initially be going as fast to get off of the moon as you would off of the Earth. But if we wanted to get off of, say, the sun, Uh that's much more massive. So it would take a lot more effort to get away from the sun in that way.
1: Okay. And so the point is that you, you would have to have a lot more velocity to escape the sun than you would have to have to escape earth. Correct. And you would have to have to escape the moon.
0: Right. And this all, this all has to do with actually how far away you are from the center of each of those objects as well. Mm -hmm. Like the closer you are, the more effort it will take. But you know, if you started at the same distance from each of those three objects, it'd be easiest to get away from the moon, a little bit harder to get away from the earth. And much harder to get away from the sun. Okay. You'd have to be traveling at a much faster pace to get away from the sun than you would from either the earth or the moon. And so the argument here would be, well, you know, if we had something even more massive than that, to get away from that, maybe you'd have to go faster and faster and faster. There is a limit, though. There is a a speed limit to speed, which is the speed of light, Mm. which, as we've talked about before, is exactly 2.99792458 times ten to the eighth meters per second in vacuum. (laughs) Okay. And so, nothing, not even light, can go faster than the speed of light. And so, if you had something that was so massive, then you wouldn't be able to escape from that ever.
1: Okay. And so I understand how mathematically it works out that right. if you just keep on turning the dial for speed higher and higher and higher, then the other side of the equation for how massive does the thing need to be to prevent escape velocity, Right. eventually you get to this minimum mass beyond which light no longer escapes. Right. And anything more massive than that is then well over a gravitational pull that would prevent photons from escaping. Yes. And by the way, is the reason photons cannot escape, is, is that due to attributes of their particle nature the So, t- gravity Einstein's, affects them?
0: Einstein's version of gravity does not rely on it being that way at all. Oh. You don't have to have mass. So it, the way Newton formulated gravity, you need mass. But okay. the way... Einstein did it. No mass is involved. It's just that something called space-time is warped and kind of traps it inside. Oh, okay. I'm going to intentionally try to stay away from some of the those things. Okay. Okay. I'm just living in a
1: Newtonian
0: world. It's. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing, though, is that it was theoretically hypothesized, like, oh, you could maybe have something like this. And then other people came back and they did some calculations and they were like, no, I mean, the density would have to be really, really high in order to actually achieve this. Mm. So you would have to have something that's really packed together. At that early time, they didn't know of anything that could be done like that. Mm. Since that time, we have discovered that there are things called neutron stars and those can be dense enough that they could create a black hole. Are you going to tell me what a neutron star is? Yeah. So what we're going to have to do is take a sort of a big detour here and come back around to it. Okay. Yeah, let's let's just swerve right out of the way and so let's start with stars. Okay. Okay. So stars are these big shiny objects in outer space. Um <laughs> but eventually they have they all have a life cycle it turns out. Okay. And their life cycle is a lot longer than our life cycle, so it seems like they're permanently there, but stars do die. Hmm. And the way stars live, the way they shine light and everything is basically fusion. So in every star what's happening is that energy is created by fusing elements together okay if you remember fusion is where you take lighter elements mush their nuclei together and that (laughs) releases energy and gives you something that's a heavier element
1: and it takes an incredible amount of energy to fuse atoms
0: right so there's sort of a big barrier that you have to get over okay it's a lot of energy i mean it's sort of like you know if you wanted to light something on fire Hmm. to get it initially lit is very hard to do but then Mm once you have it burning, then that's creating more energy itself, right? Okay, yeah. It's sort of that idea of like, you know, if you have some elements at the center of a star, if you can get them to start fusing, then they can self-perpetuate. They'll be adding energy to the furnace and and keep it going. So it takes a lot of energy to get it started in the first place. Okay. But that's how stars shine. In fact, our sun is making helium from hydrogen inside of its core. Okay. So it's creating this energy, and that is making the center of the sun hot enough and have enough gravitational pressure that it can continue turning hydrogen ultimately into helium. Okay. Now, it turns out that's all it can do, that our sun is doing. It needs more energy to make something heavier than helium. Mm. All right. Because again, this barrier here gets harder and harder and harder the heavier you go. And so, for instance, the next stable element that you could make heavier than, hel- than helium through just simple fusion would be carbon. Mm. But in order to make carbon, you have to have three helium atoms smushed together at the same time. Mm. So you can imagine like that takes a lot more energy to smush three things together all at once than it would just smashing two things together. Mm-hmm. And so our sun is not big enough. It doesn't have the energy reserves to make that happen. And so our sun is not making carbon. Okay, It is going to make only helium. And basically when it runs out of easy access to the hydrogen, it's going to die. Along the way, it'll turn into a red giant, which we won't get into the details of. But eventually it's going to uh, stop doing fusion. And it'll just be this ember that's just cooling down for you know millennia. Okay. And when it turns into this ember, it's something that we call a white dwarf. Okay. At that point, the fusion has turned off. So there's nothing pushing things back out. So the star will just kind of shrink. But then the temperature from the outside and each- needs, inside will sort of equilibrate a little bit better than they are now. And so then what's left over is something that looks really really hot and it's bright white hot. It's because it's so hot. Okay. Most stars will end up as a white dwarf at the end of their life cycle. Okay. And um, then is the the heat energy of a white
1: dwarf is that the leftover heat energy from its life as a star and because it's not generating any new heat? Right. And so that it slowly
0: cools. got the idea? Okay. And so like the center of our sun, for instance, is like 10 million degrees Kelvin. Uh But the outer, the parts that we actually see of the sun are only at about like 6,000 Kelvin. Mm. And so you can imagine if this all collapses down and is tightly packed, then we would be able to see, you know, the 10 million would sort of distribute out better. And so that's what we would see on the outside once it's distributed better outside. Okay. Anyway, so that's how most stars will die; they'll just end up being this ember, just kind of smoldering for a long, long time.
1: Now you can have so our sun, our that's our sun, and I gather that you are working up to. Therefore, our sun
0: is not going to become a black hole. Correct. Okay. Yeah, our sun is just ultimately going to turn into a white dwarf. Okay. If you have a bigger star, you know, a bigger stars might be able to fuse heavier elements. So rather than just stopping at helium and, and turning into a, a white dwarf, maybe they'll make some carbon in the core. Mm. Maybe they'll fuse even heavier, like some oxygen, maybe silicon, maybe some heavier and heavier elements up to iron. But again, these stars that I'm talking about, sort of the middle way, middle size stars there. These middle size stars, though, will still stop fusion at some point because, you know, the heavier and heavier you get, the less energy you're getting from each reaction and you The more you need to get to the next level of things and the reason i said iron is the heaviest that that fusion can make is because once you get heavier than iron you don't get any more energy if you fuse things into something any heavier than that because it turns out that if you fuse hydrogen together you get a whole lot of energy if you fuse helium together you you get a lot of energy but not as much as you got from the first step from the hydrogen if you fuse carbon together you get energy but not as much as you did when you got the helium. If you ah, make I see. heavier and heavier stuff, you're getting more energy, but at some point, you're not getting nearly as much. And at some and- point, at about iron, it switches over where you'll actually get more energy if you break them apart. Lot I of those see. A we call fission. Right. Okay. So like uranium, for instance, is very heavy. If we tried to make uranium even heavier, it would just take more energy to do that. It would not give us any extra energy. So it's not
1: that there's like something special or magical about iron that causes that to be the case. It just so happens that iron is the element where that transition from being net energy releasing still to being net energy requiring for more fusion that's the transition point, right? It just just happens to be iron.
0: Yeah. And generally, when we teach this, we always just say iron, but there are a handful of elements close to iron that are pretty much equal as well. So it's not that you you stop at iron and, and that's a hard stop. It's like, you know, maybe you're making some things a little bit heavier just for whatever reason. It may be energetically advantageous to make something a little bit heavier than iron because what it was before was less energy. I see. But, I, but basically, you know, that's sort of a, a good rule of thumb there. Okay. Now, it turns out since you can't do anything there, then that makes the core a little bit less stable, that there's nothing to, with all these lighter elements, like if you've got enough energy left over, you could make something heavier. And you would use that energy and make a star that would continue burning and so forth. But it turns out if you have a really big star, if it gets too much iron in there, then that kind of sh- cuts short the fusion faster than it normally would. Hmm. And so basically, when once you flip off the fusion, then the star will tend to collapse down. It'll tend to fall down in on itself. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing to keep pushing the everything out. So the only thing holding up the star, the integrity of that core, since it's not using fusion anymore, is just the inherent nature of protons and neutrons and electrons that they at some point like you can't pack things any tighter than they already are okay so kind of imagine like if i had a bunch of marbles and i try to pack them all together at some point maybe there's a lot of extra space that as you're packing it together they'll eventually situate themselves in a way to be as tightly packed as possible and the only way you can pack them any tighter is if those marbles actually break Mm. that's ultimately Mm -hmm. what happens with really big stars if the pressure gets too great then the atoms themselves will break and what I mean by that is that we've talked about how protons and neutrons are actually related to each other, yeah. that you can turn from a proton into a neutron. If you take mm-hmm. a proton and an electron and combine them together, you can get a neutron out of that. Mm-hmm. And so basically what will happen is the entire core of the star will, all the protons will just turn into neutrons. And so oh. you're left with something that's just a big ball of neutrons which we call a neutron star.
2: Oh, okay. And so a neutron right.
0: star is is literally just a big ball of neutrons, which is uh, kind of a crazy thought, <laughs> you know?
1: It is a crazy thought. So And so these neutrons are all packed together as if they're in one big mega nucleus.
0: Yeah, yeah, you can think of it like that, yeah.
1: So I shouldn't be picturing like a little tiny ball of neutrons with electrons orbiting them. And then over here is another little ball of neutrons with electrons orbiting them.
0: Yeah. So my cartoon here would be that basically a normal atom, you've got the nucleus in the middle, Uh and then far, far away from that are where the electrons are. Right, And that's sort of the structure of the atom itself. That's how small as you could possibly pack it down. But that these stars are pushing so hard that those electrons actually fall into the nucleus themselves. And when they do that, they turn the protons into neutrons. Got it. And so you can pack something much, much tighter down. In fact, if we took something Like the distance from where we are now at school to your house, that's like, what, four miles or so? Sure. So if we took that volume there and compressed that down to the size of a tennis ball, Hmm. that would be the change in density from, you know, something that massive down to the size of a tennis ball. Whoa. Okay. Wow. And so so a, a neutron star is much, much, much more dense than anything else that you could imagine okay and so it's yeah, interesting okay it turns out this is a destabilizing reaction it, it causes a supernova which you've probably heard of mm-hmm. but the leftovers of that is still that you have this ball of neutrons afterwards hmm. they're very hard to find but people have found neutron stars
1: what is it that triggers a supernova what is the trigger here uh well, or is that known?
0: It is known. Yeah, I I have a cartoon in my head. So imagine we had cheerleaders who made a giant pyramid. Okay, where they're standing on each other's shoulders and they're you know lifting each other up and so forth. Well, the the base of the pyramid has to be really really strong to hold up all the other cheerleaders on top of it, right? Okay. So imagine that the force gets so great that the bottom cheerleader gets crushed to a pulp. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's bad, right? That would be the this example of compressing, you know, four miles down into the size of a tennis ball. Okay. But as soon as that cheerleader shrinks down, the one right above that cheerleader falls to the ground, has this extra oomph, and also starts crushing down. So you get this chain reaction of of cheerleaders getting crushed to a pulp. Okay. But eventually, the top cheerleaders are going to sort of, they won't crush down. They'll just bounce off of the pile of mushy cheerleaders. Okay.
1: <laughs> And and so it it's sort of like a rebound exactly of, of like yeah. the outer the outer layer collapsing down onto all the underneath layers and reflecting off of that or rebounding yeah. off of that. And, yeah. and
0: that rebound is and so then the rebounded cheerleaders are now running into other cheerleaders that are falling down. And oh you I get see. all sorts of other stuff going on. And that's what the supernova is, is that these gases from the outer layers are trying to fall in as well, but then they're running into the rebounding material. And that causes all sorts of explosions and reactions and all sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. And that's a supernova. And that's a supernova. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy to think that this is all connected in, in all these different ways. But basically, the rebounding part is something that we can actually see remnants of supernova throughout space. There's the, just this big cloud of gas that expands outward. Side note we've talked about the beginning of our solar system Yes, comes from this sort of a reaction that the the rebounding gas then will form its own solar system and so forth later on and create maybe a, another star and, and planets and so forth orbiting around it.
1: And so what that implies is that the original star that had this supernova that formed the raw material of some of which became our solar system. Mm-hmm. That original star must have been more massive than our whole entire solar system. Yeah. Combined.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So for us to form, there had to have been at least one supernova. And the thought is there's it's probably been at least four or five different supernova that formed the material that turned into us eventually.
1: Okay. And here uh, we are. Cool. And here we are.
0: Yeah. All right. So but the remnants, what's left at the center of after the supernova is this thing called a neutron star. Okay. Which is just a big ball of neutrons basically Mm -hmm. and so we already talked about the escape velocity and so a black hole is just a neutron star that is dense enough and has enough mass there that light cannot escape from that object i see and that's a black hole yes so a black hole is actually on the spectrum of other stars and things like that it's just the carcass of a star that was very massive at some point
1: okay so that's a black hole generally and you suggested at the top that all galaxies have a black hole at the center of them and then are there other black holes sort of scattered throughout galaxies
0: yes and so there are there are different classes of black holes there are these things called supermassive black holes which is what's at the center of the milky way Uh and then there are other just meh black holes (laughs) okay (laughs) but yeah so you can kind of make a picture here of like okay so maybe the start of any galaxy would be that you had to have like this massive star that then created a massive a supermassive black hole and then its remnants spun off a whole bunch of other stars and then those maybe had supernova and created maybe some of them made black holes maybe some of them made neutron stars and then those spun off and made more stars and on and on and on, and so you can kind of imagine that that's how you would get a galaxy in the first place, that maybe it starts with Mm. a giant star that spawned off all these other stars around it. Mm.
1: And so if you go back far enough in time, you might get back to a point where there were basically a universe of- Just hydrogen. Just hydrogen, okay. Yeah. Would it be homogeneously distributed or would that hydrogen be organized into
0: galaxy-sized stars? Closer to the galaxy-sized stars, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we have remnants of something called the Big Bang, which was the start of the Uh universe. From that, there was nothing but hydrogen, and that spawned off all the different galaxies from there. Mm -hmm. The hydrogen would not have been uniformly distributed, because if it was exactly uniformly distributed, then you wouldn't have the structure that we do have. Mm -hmm. So seems that black holes are very important for the growth and maturation of galaxies and and everything around us. Mm -hmm. So just to bring it back to what we started out talking about, that means that black holes are not necessarily these giant sucking machines that just devour everything. Mm -hmm. They may actually play a very important role in how galaxies can actually form. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's possible to orbit black holes. I mean, we're orbiting a black hole right now. And in fact, there's a research team at UCLA led by Andrea Ghez, and they've been tracking stars going around the black hole in the Milky Way galaxy. So the black hole is called Sagittarius A, and they've been tracking that for at least 15 years now Mm. and tracking all these stars going near it. And so that's actually how we know how massive this supermassive black hole is because they can track the stars that are orbiting around it. Okay. And some of those stars, one of those stars actually is getting as close as 17 light hours away from the center of the Milky Way and then getting flung Whoa. back out. Right. So that's sort huh. of like imagine like a comet coming into the sun, you know, it gets in really close to the sun and then. Goes far away again. I see. And so there are a bunch of stars that are actually orbiting pretty tightly around this black hole at the center of the Milky Way.
1: And so when when they are getting close in their approach to a black hole, do they like speed up and speed up and speed up? They do speed or... up. Yep. Just oh. like a,
0: a comet does. The comet is going very slowly when it's in the outer rims of the solar system, and then it speeds up and speeds up as it comes in closer to the sun. Wow. And then it what must that back be out. like
1: if if those stars have solar systems? What must that be like? Like what? What would the night sky look like? I wonder.
0: Well, what's important to note is that these are outside of. When we were talking about the escape velocity before, you have to mm-hmm. be closer than a certain distance in order to be in the black hole. Mm-hmm. As long as you're outside of that, then light can escape, and that's how we're mm-hmm. able to see these stars, for instance, because they're mm-hmm. they're outside of that distance. And so they're able to give off their light.
2: But
1: if you were on a planet orbiting one of those suns, would there be just sort of like a blank void in the night sky oh, okay. where the black hole is? You know what I'm saying? Yes. yes. Or, or would light from stars behind it still be reaching you because they sort of like gravitational lens around the black hole or something?
0: There would be a little bit of that as well. Yeah. Okay. yeah, that's a fun thing to think about. That would be sometimes I think about like it would be fun to write science fiction books where you're using like good science like that. (laughs) But then I would be a very because that's all I would care about. I wouldn't care about a plot or (laughs) character development or anything like that. But that's why I'm not an author. So, yeah, well,
1: (laughs) so how do we see black holes then? If They're just the the absence of visible cues, I guess.
0: So, yeah, it's true. We cannot see a black hole. Because it itself is not giving off light. No light can escape from it. But as you say, there is this thing called gravitational lensing, where it is possible that if we see a star sort of behind the black hole, that its light could actually get bent around it. Because the light that's obviously going directly into the black hole is going to get absorbed and mm-hmm. can't escape. But any photons that are going near it, but not quite, mm-hmm. will get deflected a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so it is possible that we might see like two stars behind a black hole or something Uh like that, depending on, you know, exactly where that star is located and so forth. So that's one way that we could see a black hole. Another way that we can see it, though, is that anything that accelerates can give off light. Anything that is speeding up can give off light. Hmm. I mean, it sounds weird, but I mean, that's how radio stations work. We have a radio antenna and we're sending electrons up and down the radio antenna. And so Hmm. those electrons are accelerating up and down and up and down the radio antenna. In the process of doing that, they're actually emitting light at that particular frequency. Hmm. And it turns out there are these national labs called synchrotrons in which they're also intentionally doing that. They're sending particles around in a ring and making them speed up at various locations. And when they do that, those particles are emitting light and then you have a very pure form of light right there. Same thing happens out in space. That if you have something that's accelerating in towards a black hole. That material is accelerating, and so it will actually emit light as well.
1: Okay, so it's like sort of like the an in. I don't know if indirect is the appropriate word, but what you are observing is the consequence of the black hole right on something else. Yeah, yeah. And so okay.
0: as as the material is falling into it, it is accelerating up, and it's making more and more light. And so in recent years, people have been able to actually image black holes in that way by showing that they have a ring of gas that's accelerating in towards it
1: i see and is that that image that came out maybe a year or two ago of the black hole that looks like a a sort of an orangish ring is yes is this uh, and that's what that is
0: yeah yeah ah i see okay you know maybe a star got too close to it and so it is pulling off some gas from that or some other object like that is getting ripped apart and it's sort of eating the leftover of that. And okay. I'm I'm saying so eating that... because on the news they keep using that word. It's personification and I know you hate that and <laughs> <laughs> And in this case it's it's not accurate either, right? Because we've talked about our solar system before that the things that have just the perfect orbit. You know, if we think about the early solar system where we had our proto-sun, the only things that have stuck around are the things that had the perfect orbit to do so. Over time, lots of little rocks and gases and things like that just made their way into the sun and were absorbed into the sun. And we're the exception on Earth, that we just happen to have the exact right orbit to stay stable for Mm -hmm. four and a half billion years, right? The Mm -hmm. same thing is happening with a black hole, that in these cases, you know, maybe there are things that have a stable orbit like these stars going around the, the Sagittarius A. But there are also some things that do not have the right orbit. And so then they are actually getting pulled and they're circling the drain, basically. They're going to fall in at mm-hmm. some
1: point. And then I would assume that like as stars go through their life cycle and maybe give off supernovas, right. the, the energy of those explosions can change the directory of what of something that had been in a stable orbit into yeah. what becomes an unstable orbit.
0: And and some of those gases that they're giving off might just get sucked right into the black hole because they just got too close. Right. And they didn't have their own momentum to stay in a stable orbit around uh-huh. that black hole. Okay, so So those are okay. black holes and supermassive black holes. Now, what got me excited about this was this paper talking about where we would expect to find supermassive black holes. We do find them definitely at the center of galaxies, but like you might think based on, on the way we kind of framed this earlier, that if you had a really, really supermassive star that turned into a black hole, that it spawned off all these other stars that eventually turned into the galaxy, right? So what you would expect then would be, okay, a really big galaxy would come from a really big supermassive black hole. Uh-huh. And like a smaller galaxy might just be a smaller black hole. That is still started the same process, but it was smaller to start with. And so it, it just didn't make as big of a galaxy. Okay. And this paper where they were doing some assessment of that sort of thing, actually was finding that there are a number of small galaxies that have a supermassive black hole at the center of them, Hmm. which went against what they were expecting to find.
1: That's interesting.
0: And they've also found a handful of supermassive black holes sort of at the edge of a galaxy as well.
1: So does that tell us anything then about how we should revise our understanding of the formation of supermassive black holes or galaxies? Or is this just like, oh, they're out here too?
0: Well, I think the working theory Uh is that galaxies sometimes run into each other. Ah. And so then it's possible that maybe in a smaller galaxy that it went too close to a larger galaxy and a number of its stars just kind of switched teams (laughs) to this (laughs) other one. Or maybe that... Two galaxies merge together, and then you've got one supermassive black hole at the center of that new galaxy, and then the other one just happens to be on the outskirts. And, mm.
1: and I suppose there's no reason that a couple of uh, black holes couldn't kind of orbit each other, right? That's true. I mean, I feel like I've heard about black holes being locked in an orbit with each other. And I mean, so one of the ways that that might happen is if you had two galaxies passing through each other or Mm -hmm. two stars that underwent a supernova that were close enough to each other. Yeah. Well, cool. But Um, so
0: there are a lot of questions still out there. And I mean, the, the problem with particularly studying how galaxies evolve and how they change and so forth is that, I mean, already we're at a disadvantage with how stars live and die and so forth because it takes them so long to do it right and so rather than studying it like okay well I'm gonna watch this one star and see how it evolves and changes its entire life what we have to do instead is look at a whole bunch of stars if we see enough stars then we can hopefully see some young ones and some old ones and so forth but with how galaxies change and the place of black holes within those galaxies it's the same problem but more so right because it takes Mm -hmm. even longer for a galaxy to form right And if two galaxies run into each other, that takes a long time to do it. And so astronomers are working on that. But what they're doing to work on that is to find more and more examples of this sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of questions still out there. and But a lot of people are working on building up a database to be able to study all this behavior. So... Yeah, and, and with the
1: uh, Webb Space Telescope and the ability to see so many more galaxies yeah. now, perhaps astronomers will be able to catch glimpses of the galaxies at various different developmental phases, I guess. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, that gives me something to mull over this evening when I'm Trying having to a cocktail.
0: <laughs> oh, So okay. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes, email us at Gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. We'd love to hear from you. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.